Good morning, everybody. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Steve. You've picked that much up already. Uh, I lead the church here, and it's my, um, I'm excited about this new season and a new series about which a PowerPoint will appear in just a moment, I'm sure. There we go. And let's have the text that goes with it as well, because this is... Oh, just stay there then. There's text missing from the first slide. I'm sorry to confuse you, Andy. It's very unkind of me. But we just have the picture of the tree that you've got in the term card that's on your... Uh, your chairs. Our theme for the term is about being rooted, oh there it is, rooted in Christ. This is a picture that Bev painted during the worship. It's really big and we maybe get it put up in the building here at some point this term uh, at our summer camp at Transform as a theme that came out through our time together as a whole family of churches from across the UK gathered together about us being rooted deep in Christ in order to have confidence in him. And it's that theme of being rooted in Christ that we're going to have throughout September, October, and November on our Sundays together this year. Once we get nearer Christmas, we'll get a little bit more Christmassy. Uh, we're planning a couple of special Sundays for Christmas, one of which will be around singing the Messiah, and another of which will involve animals, we hope. Um, so once we get nearer Christmas, we'll do some Christmassy things in Advent. But between now and the end of November, we're going to be looking at this theme of being rooted in Christ. In the book of Colossians, Paul writes this, Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. And we want to take these next few months to keep coming back to this focus about what difference does it make that we're living life with Jesus? What difference does it make for us to be rooted in him and to receive strength from him? And it will lead us to overflow with thankfulness. I was grateful for Stuart's picture this morning that was all about us being focused on Jesus, or rather seeing things the way Jesus sees them. And that's what we're going to be looking at over the next few months. Um, This morning's theme is this, the Word of God, picture of a Bible. And um, as I prepared for this morning to speak on this this first theme, how Christ's words to us, how the word of God is something we can be rooted into and something in which we can find strength and something that will lead us to overflow with thankfulness. I have to say, I I struggled to avoid doing like a whole lecture series on how amazing the Bible is. There is just... In speaking on the Bible, more than anything else, there's just so much that could be said. Who's signed up to start KST this year? Emily has. Shark and Kirsty have. There's a few. But KST is the King's School of Theology. Who here has been either to that King's School of Theology that we run or one of its previous incarnations? There was King's Bible College, King's Bible College and Training Center, King's... Also, wave a hand. It's quite a lot. So I'm really confident this morning, you can stick your hands down, that we're, you know, this is a community of people that value the Word of God highly, even if you've not done a year-long training course on the Bible. Um, you, I know you're going to listen to me for the next few minutes talking about the Bible. So there's at least some uh, commitment to it. But um, it's just amazing. The Bible, if there's one thing I'd like to communicate this morning, it's to leave you with a fresh sense that the Bible is... Amazing. 
If, if you go out thinking just a little bit more highly of the Bible than you came in this morning, then I'll, then I'll be dead chuffed. That'll do for me. But why is it then? Let's, let's start off by thinking a little bit about the Bible. Why is it? There's some funny things going on with my PowerPoint this morning. Not to worry. I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit pedantic about PowerPoints, as some of you may know. So this is going to just pray that this doesn't disturb me. I've put up a picture of a three-legged stool because there are three different strands that people often look to as reasons why we trust the Bible. One of those is to do with tradition, church history, if you like. Simple fact of the matter is that for 2,000 years, the vast majority of Christians have not critiqued the Bible, but rather felt that we should obey it. And if we as Christians, take a different view, then we're really unusual. We're in a tiny minority uh, compared to all that God's people have seen for many centuries. That's one reason, just tradition. Why trust it? Well, Christians always have. Here's another reason. Um, There are some evidences from archaeology, if we stop and look at them and think about them. One of my favorites is to do with the story that's told in John chapter 5, where Jesus heals a man at the pool of Bethesda. And it says here, little details, that in verse 2 of John chapter 5, this pool of Bethesda is surrounded by five covered colonnades. And then it says in verse 5 that the invalid whom he'd been healed had, had been an invalid for 38 years. Five covered colonnades, 38 years, which is nearly 40. And For many years, people read those verses and scholars ummed and ahed about them and ruminated, as scholars do, and made sense of it and said, well, of course, it's a story there to inspire us and the the history of it is not really important. What's going on here is that John is speaking of the five books of the law of Moses, of the Pentateuch, and how this man had spent all his time sat under them and they'd never done him any good until Jesus came along. And this is really clear to us because he's 38 or 40 years speaks of the length of time that the people of Israel were in the desert, again, not yet entering the promised land, and Jesus comes along. And if only we read it properly and remember that it's not meant to be history, but we're meant to work it out, uh, then then we'll understand these things. And then an archaeologist found it and found the five covered colonnades, quite surprising, in a sort of figure of eight shape, two long ones, two short ones at the end, and and one across the middle, and people said, oh. (laughs) And actually, there's loads of points like that where archaeology has turned up things that the Bible speaks about. Now, that's another reason. There's the tradition of treating the Bible with uh, seriousness and placing value upon it. There are some evidences from archaeology. Probably, if we're honest, what has impacted most of us more than either of those things is just our experience of reading it. It's like we can describe, there's just a ring of truth about it. You read things and you think, that is just true. One of the things that impacts me in that way, always has done and always does every time I read it, is just flicking on a few chapters in John's Gospel to the story of the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, where She's obviously been set up a bit because, you know, she's about to be stoned and the bloke's nowhere to be seen. And the people say, well, what are you going to do, Jesus? Because, you know, we're supposed to stone her and he knows it's a setup. And he says, well, let the one who's got no sin cast the first stone. 
And I love the fact, as I'm sure many of you do, that it says they all, they all you know, drifted away, the oldest ones first. Whether that's the wisdom of years, or they just had more time to commit sin. I mean, I don't know. But um, there's a ring of truth about the story, but there's an authority in what Jesus says. As soon as you read those words, you think, that is not just normal human thinking. <laughs> there's something more going on here. And so... If you take those things, the reason I put a picture of a three-legged stool is when you put those things together, they do provide quite a stable basis for valuing the Bible. But um, if we're honest, those things aren't enough. I mean, church tradition sometimes throws up some odd things, and archaeology doesn't always neatly align with what the Bible has to say. And our, our feelings go up and down, and not everyone who reads the Scriptures feels quite the same way about it. So it won't do just to rest on those things. What we need to do is actually to read what the scriptures say about the scriptures and see what the the word of God is as it describes the word of God. And that will put us on a much better foundation. So to take some words of Jesus, Jesus says of his own words Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. You see, if we think about the archaeology and get all clever about it and whatever, that might make us 60% certain or 70% certain or maybe even 80% certain. But Jesus says you can be 100% certain, or as they like to say on X Factor, 110% through certain. We can place our full weight on Jesus' words and they'll bear our weight. We can step onto him, onto his words rather, and trust in them. And that's not just something that applies to the spoken words of Jesus, but Jesus amazingly took this same attitude towards the Old Testament. He, when he was tempted by the devil, as it's recorded in Matthew chapter 4, he said, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And there's several things going on there. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament at a point where the Old Testament makes its own statement about just how essential the word of God is. Jesus is backing up the value of the written word at several levels by saying that. And then, of course, there's what the Apostle Peter wrote about Paul's letters. Our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that God gave him. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. That verse is a huge encouragement to many people. The Apostle Peter, who spent three years with Jesus, was there on the day of Pentecost, was the rock in whom the church would be built, found Paul's letters hard to understand. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Which, but then he says, which ignorant and unstable people distort, importantly, as they do the other scriptures. So here's the Apostle Peter describing Paul's letters as being scripture, giving them the same status that Jesus gave the Old Testament as being the very words of God. Now, At this point, it feels all a little bit like words about words, or maybe words about words about words. And uh, the truth is that we live in an age of information where words seem to outnumber the grains of sand. Uh, 
and it can be a little bit disorientating. I'd like to try and cut through that by turning right to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 and the first few verses, where we find not just words, but very simply we find a voice. It says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. How did he do that? How did God create? Verse 3, God spoke. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And then in verse 5, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So God spoke and his voice created. And throughout the Old Testament and then on into the New, we find the voice of God being described as the most powerful of things. In Ezekiel 43, verse 2, it says this, His voice was like the rushing, sorry, his voice was like the roar of rushing waters. In other words, it's really loud. See, in the ancient world, there were no loudspeakers to help along, uh, no motorbikes, no aeroplanes. Pretty much the loudest thing you might ever hear was rushing waters. I mean, a big waterfall was pretty much the loudest thing you might ever hear. Uh, When we visited Niagara Falls a few years ago, we went and watched a film about it in their visitor center, and it said the first people to discover Niagara Falls were frightened witless. They'd never heard anything that loud before. There wasn't anything that loud in the ancient world. And the scriptures describe the voice of God, and Ezekiel says his voice was like the roar of rushing waters, or something else, it's just as loud maybe, like the tumult of armies. Or maybe something else that was incredibly loud in the ancient world, thunder. So when it says in Job 37, God's voice thunders, it's speaking about just how strong the voice of God is. This voice that spoke and light came into being went on to speak and order came into the world, spoke and living creatures appeared. This strong voice, this powerful voice, it thunders. And I love what Job 37 says. It says, God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. It doesn't just thunder. It's not just strong. It's marvelously strong. God's voice thunders in marvelous ways. Psalm 29, verse 3 The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of God thunders. You know, when God spoke at Jesus' baptism saying, this is my son, some people said it thundered. God's voice is strong. And when Jesus, living on earth, spoke, his voice had the same power whether it was stilling the storm or setting people free from demons or healing the sick or forgiving sin. So here we go. When Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 that all scripture is God-breathed, it doesn't just mean that the whole Bible has authority. It means that when we come to the Bible, it's like someone's taken a tornado and put it in a tin. And given it to us. 
the phrase God breathed isn't just about trying to say, oh, there's something of God about it in a floaty kind of way. When we describe the Bible as the word of God, sometimes I think that can get a little bit lost on us. When what we really mean is these are the words of God. And this is the voice of God. And it's, it's like a tornado in a tin. It's like a crouching tiger. It's like thunder and lightning in a book. It's the voice of God made available to us. And because, oh, I missed a slide about, there we go. Because, because it's God's voice, because it's God's voice, you know, it's all good. It's all good. And in that sense, there's, it's kind of, there's a similarity all the way through it that it's all good. It does all of us good. All of it's God-breathed. All of it has God's energy and power for us in it. And at the same time, those words come to us in different styles, uh, what we call genres. There are different ways of writing, different styles in which it's written down for us. And I thought it would be helpful for us just to have a look at a few of those, the main styles of writing, the main uh, styles of God speaking to us, and think about the different ways in which those different styles impact upon us and, and how we respond. So here's the first one. My word's going to, no, they're not going to. That says at the, in the top left, uh, wisdom and instruction. You see, there's one of the genres in the scriptures is uh, just straightforwardly teaching us about how things are, what to think. So take the book of Romans, for example. Most of that is just explaining stuff to us that we'd understand, even if the Apostle Peter and we sometimes find it tricky. There's the book of Proverbs, just full of wisdom, teaching us, you know, how the world works, how God works in the world, and how we can act as godly people in the world. And this wisdom teaching, this instructive teaching is given to us in order to alter our thinking. It's given to us in order to change our thinking. Let me explain what that might, how that might work, what that might feel like. Certainly, I find that as I read through the Bible for myself, I find myself thinking, yeah, I get that, okay. Keep reading, I get that, okay. Next verse, I get that, I get that. And then every now and again, coming across something that just jars. Uh, it just jars, it just... It might feel immediately like I just, it's almost like my mind skips over it. I don't know if you ever have that experience. It just doesn't go in. And I find myself, hang on a minute, I missed a bit. Sometimes it's like that. Sometimes I read it and I think, what? You can't be serious. That, that does not fit with other things that I know. And sometimes I'm like the Apostle Peter and I go, I have no idea what that means. I just, I just frankly have no idea. One way or another, I come across bits, and I'm sure you do too, that just jar. What's that about? Well, I'd like to suggest, as I think I've suggested in preaching before, that those are the most important bits for us when it comes to altering our thinking. They're the bits that have got the most power to change us. Because as it stands, when we come to those bits, we are at odds with them. 
We're going through it, and it's making sense. I get that, and I get that, and I get that. And then something comes along. I don't get that. That tells me that my thinking at that point is at odds with the voice of God. And that's when I need to pause. Now, more often than not, I find it's not that I don't understand it, but it's something that I just don't believe. It's not hard to grasp in the sense of being slippery. It's more that it's hard to grasp like a nettle is hard to grasp. I just don't really want to. Sometimes it's things like this. When I read in Romans 8, God is for me. I find that hard to believe. As in, like, all the time, every day, in everything, God is for, God is for me. Anyway, that rather clashes with Joshua 3 anyway, where the commander of the Lord's army says, you know, I'm not for you or against you, but are you with me? I mean, well, I just don't get that. What does it mean? That, can I just ask God to do what I like? I don't get that. And yet, the simple truth of Scripture, God is for me. No one can be against me. I don't believe that. It jars. And right there is an opportunity for me to be changed. And for each one of us, as we read and we hit, and that doesn't make any sense. I don't get that. That's where we have the most opportunity for change. When the Scriptures say that in Christ we are free forever from condemnation. We're in Philippians 4, where it says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Really? I'm not sure I believe that, but it's true. So what happens when these words sometimes jar against us? These words that are they're given to us to instruct us and teach us, but they jar sometimes. I'd like to suggest to you that what that does is it, those moments... They reveal ungodly beliefs in us that have remained with us despite our conversion to Christ. It's what the, the word stronghold means. You know, um, that in the ancient world you had cities were protected by walls, but you know, a whole city, it's hard to put a really big wall around a whole city. So they were, they were vulnerable to being broken down because they weren't that strong. But what you could do is build within the city a stronghold. Some of those really thick walls and really easy to defend. And then if the city wall was broken, you could retreat into the stronghold. And although the city might get you know, pillaged and whatever, you could be safe. And then when the invaders had gone, you could come back out and fix everything and repopulate the city. And there are bits of our old pre-Christian thinking that remain like that for us. Even though we're Christians, it's like Christ has come in, he's conquered in our lives, broken down the outer wall, come into our lives, he's in and living there, but there are little pockets of resistance. And as we read through the Bible, I want to encourage us to do this. Let's see if this works. There we are. It's given to us, the word is given to us that we might wash in it. And whatever strongholds there may be, the Bible has the power to wash them away. In the face of this mighty, rushing voice of God, even the most powerful strongholds are like sandcastles. They can't withstand the truth and the power of his word. So 
what do we do with the instruction, with the teaching that's in the scripture? I'd like to suggest that our response is to keep on washing in it. Let it wash over us. Let it wash us clean until we're pure. That's the first thing. There's another genre in the Bible. Uh, law. <laughs> this is a nice one, isn't it? Law and command, like the Ten Commandments. There's quite a lot of commandments in the Bible, actually. All sorts of different things, sometimes given to particular individuals, sometimes given to the whole nation of Israel, sometimes given to no one in particular, but definitely meant for us. Of course, not all of those commandments are to be followed today just as they were given. So, for example, there are commandments in the Old Testament about seeing prawns as unclean. And Jesus overturned that, declaring all foods clean. So we've got to think carefully about quite what the commandments in Scripture require from us today. We, we live in a different culture, and many things need translating for us. Now, having said that, I think that perhaps the greatest danger in our response to God's law and command is that we become too clever and end up in a tangle. Let me give an illustration. Uh, suppose God was to call you to go as uh, one of his children, as a missionary, to Papua New Guinea. There's lots of tribes in Papua New Guinea that live very remotely. And uh, suppose you were to go and praise God after you'd worked a few miracles, raised a few people from the dead, survived being you know, poisoned, normal sorts of stuff. Uh, some people were to get born again and a church was to be formed and you were translating the scriptures for them because you'd learned the language along the way. And you got to the bit where it says, Jesus, the Lamb of God. You know, I've got to translate that for them. The problem with these tribes is they don't have any sheep. The only livestock you find in the Papua New Guinean rainforest is pigs. So what do you do? There's a strong desire... I think, to, re to write it like would make sense for them. Instead of putting Jesus, the Lamb of God, translate it for them, Jesus, the piglet of God. Oh, it's their heart language. It's going to make lots of sense to them. And of course, the command given uh, to church leaders to, become, to be shepherds to God's people would instead be a command to become swineherds. And instead of bad leaders fleecing sheep, they'd be skinning pigs and, and so on and so on. It makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? It sounds very clever. The problem is that the Bible names more than one kind of livestock. And they're, different, they're, they're treated differently. Some are clean and some are unclean. And so at some point, you're going to come across the bit that needs translating that talks about swine, about pigs being unclean and being treated differently from sheep which were considered clean, and you're going to be in a tangle because there's a need, bizarre though it is, there's a need for these people in the forests of Papua New Guinea to get their head around the livestock practices of the ancient Near East if they're going to read God's word. You think, well, that's a bit... Is that, is, that's a bit strange, isn't it? I mean, it's really weird that God would have communicated to us in such a way 
that we would have to learn about first century culture. And yet it's what we do. We break bread and wine. We break bread and we share wine. It's not pizza and beer. Uh, it's not rice and sake. It's, it's bread and wine. And the reason it's bread and wine is because Jesus did bread and wine. And he did bread and wine in a particular culture. Let me put it this way. You can take the Bible out of the ancient world, but you can't take the ancient world out of the Bible. You can, take the, you can take the Bible out of the ancient world, and praise God we do. You can't take the ancient world out of the Bible. And I wonder if, some, if, if any of us have fallen into the trap of writing off those biblical commands that we don't understand. Um, see, one of the things about commandments from God is, is often they only start to make sense when you do them. They often don't make sense before you do them. But when you start doing what God says, then things start to make more sense. There's some things you have to live and get on the inside of rather than have to understand it all beforehand. And so for many of us, the biggest danger is, is this, that when it comes to reading God's commands... We don't just get on with walking in it, which is why I've got a little narrow uphill path here. We don't just get on with walking in it, but we overthink it and it paralyzes us. Uh, The best response when we see God's commands is to walk in it. I'm not denying for one moment the need to do some thinking. But my perception is that it's not too little thinking that's our greatest problem. It's too much We are not a people that would easily be accused of regularly going out doing stupid things like giving all our, you know, all our money to the poor. We just read it in the Bible. Just did it. Didn't stop and think. Just did it. We're not, we're not at that end of the spectrum, really. The end of the spectrum that we're at is the one where we go, well, yeah, I know rich young ruler was told to do that, wasn't he? Yeah, well, that's because he was rich. Don't need to, next page. That's our bigger danger. So, um, where were we? Instruction is there that we might wash in it. Commands are given that we might walk in them. There's another genre which actually makes up um, the majority of the Bible. This is the biggest chunk, which is story and poetry. God's words to us most often come, God's voice is most often heard telling a story. At the moment, I'm reading uh, 1 Samuel, the story of the Israelites asking for a king and getting Saul and that going badly wrong, and then David, and then they sort of two power bases for a bit and different tribes align with different people and all of that stuff. It's a great story. And I'm, I'm, I'm finding that rather than just reading through it, I'm going back and reading it again. I'm going back and reading it again, and I'm, I'm looking up different ideas about the history and the geography and the politics and what's really going on. I'm getting into it. I'm chewing it over and over, hence the, the dog. You see, um, the Hebrew word, those of you who've read Eugene Peterson's book called Eat This Book, that, has anyone read that? A few of you have. Great book. Uh, he points out that the Hebrew word for meditate 
which is what we think, chewing it over again and again, thinking about it, reflecting on it. That word meditate in Hebrew is used in Isaiah 31 and verse 4 of a lion growling over its prey. Lion that's taken down whatever it's going to eat for lunch and it's on top of it growling away like a dog worrying a bone. It hunkers down, worrying over it, tasting it, chewing it, remaining on it. Other words that um, are sometimes used to describe the same thing is just the way it's like it's like letting it's like letting um, a tablet or a lozenge slowly melt in your mouth until it's all gone. I find that really hard. I always want to start chewing it. Maybe that's a new personality test just invented there for the patient and the impatient. That sense of just letting things dissolve, melt imperceptibly until it's all gone. We sometimes talk about being absorbed in a book. That's, the, that's what we're talking about here, like being absorbed in the story of the scriptures. And so this is very simple. And a, a third response, the response to the instruction is to wash in it. If the response to commandments is to walk in it, the response to story and poetry is a bit clearer on this side, is to worry it. Like a dog worries a bone to keep at it, nibble at it, chew it, taste it, keep working at it. Get all of the goodness that there is to get out of it. And then here's a fourth, and this is the last one that I'm going to look at. Uh, Prophecy and promise. There's another style that we also get loads of in the Bible. Another style in which God speaks, if you like which is what we find when God speaks about the future. When God speaks about the future, we call it prophecy. Sometimes we find whole books of prophecy in the Bible. Sometimes there's just little brief statements within other books. Uh, sometimes the God's talk about the future is pretty frank and straightforward like when Jesus speaks of the fall of Jerusalem and says, it's going to get broken down, run to the hills. Sometimes it needs really careful interpretation, like the book of Revelation. Uh, Some biblical prophecies speak about a future that's already taken place, like Jesus' prophecy about the fall of Jerusalem. But there are many, many prophecies of Scripture that still apply to our present and to our future. And to us, they read as promises. God's word about our future spoken to us as a promise on which we can depend. Verses like these, Habakkuk 2, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Wow. The earth will be filled, not just, with, uh, not just with the glory of the Lord, but with the knowledge. Like, we'll know it. We'll know him. He'll be seen. He'll be understood. Everywhere, people will understand who God really is. The earth will be filled with a knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's a promise we can stand on. It gives us security. Revelation 21 God's dwelling place will be among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. And he will wipe every tear from their eye. 
there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. That's why we can say with confidence that the story is not over until Jesus wins. Whatever chapter we're in, whatever the storyline is right now, if we don't see Jesus' victory, then there's another chapter coming. Because the last chapter has Jesus winning. Winning over death. Winning over bereavement and crying and pain. Amazing promise of scripture. Isaiah 42. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He won't falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. Boy, am I glad to read that when I've seen the news this week. Because I don't know about you, I think, where is justice going to come from for the peoples of the Middle East? Where's justice going to come from? Well, we can play our part. I don't know how many of you will be joining the, if it's a protest or a gathering or a demonstration on Broad Street at three o'clock this afternoon which is perhaps one of the most useful things that we can do to send a message about our feelings, Bible-inspired feelings about what should be done for refugees. But I'm hugely encouraged that God won't falter and he won't be discouraged until he establishes justice on earth. It's the promise of Scripture. And I love this too. In Micah chapter 4, God will judge between many peoples and will settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. And they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. A nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. And then a phrase that comes up many times in the Old Testament, everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree. Everyone will have their own place of belonging that is settled enough that you can plant something one year and come back for its fruit in the next year. Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. And I do love, as I spend so much of my time thinking about the church and praying about the church, Jesus' words in Matthew 16, where he says, I will build my church. Very simple. I will build my church. Sometimes we think it's up to us to build the church. Or we wonder if it will be built. Jesus promises. He speaks of the future. I will build my church. Everyone will sit under their own vine and fig tree. I will not falter until justice is established. There will be no more death and the earth will be filled with a knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. These words of scripture, this is God's voice for us about the future. So God speaks to us in different ways. When he instructs us, it's like water to wash us. When he commands us, we can walk in it and find blessing. When, when he speaks to us in story, we can worry at it. We can chew it over and get lots of goodness from it. And here, it's very simply with prophecy and promise, all we need to do is to welcome it. It's a very simple thing, a brief prayer. We say, When we read a promise of scripture like the earth will be filled with a knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, it's a brief prayer that says, yes, Lord, yes. Come soon, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Come soon, we welcome the promise. We thank you, Lord, 
for your promise. We thank you for the words that you've spoken about our future, about the future of the world, and we say yes, and we welcome them. I'm just about done. Is this one going to work? Yeah. Good. Thank you. The Bible, the Bible, uh, it's God's word to us. And so much, I mean, as we go through this Sunday series about being rooted in Christ, we're going to open the Bible every week. As we do every, you know, we do that about everything anyway. But we must open the Bible every week as we aim to be rooted in Christ because it's God's provision to us. It's his voice to us, whether that's here on Sunday mornings or for us at home or if you have the time in your working day to open the Bible at work or whether that's in your whichever community within the church that you're part of as you meet through the week to open our Bibles and hear God speaking to us. The Bible's God's word. It's God's voice for us. It's like a tornado in a tin, and it's waiting to be opened. It's waiting to be opened. It's waiting to be read. Its teaching instructs us. Its commands direct us. Its stories inspire us, and its promises bless us. Leads me to one final verse and one final question where it says in Psalm 95, and it's quoted in the book of Hebrews, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. I find myself quite often before any opportunity I have to to preach, or if I'm praying for other people who are preaching, I find myself praying not just for the person preaching, but for all of us, And you all have heard me pray it. I pray that our hearts would be good soil, that we'd be soft and receptive, that we wouldn't be hard like the path trampled upon and resistant. And I'd like us to pause and to reflect for ourselves, to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us about any area of hardness in us where We're aware that God has spoken. There are things that he has said to us or portions of the Bible, things in the Bible that we've responded to by toughening up. We've responded to by forming clever arguments when actually what we know in our spirit is that there's something for us to receive. And sometimes the things that we find most difficult are the things that have most power to change us. So I'm just going to pray and ask that God would reveal to us any hardness. And we'll go from there. The band could come back up. That would be helpful. Lord, thank you that it's actually another promise of Scripture Uh, in the book of Jeremiah, that you would take away a heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And I pray that you would make us a flesh-hearted people, not a stone-hearted people. The truth is that there are things that you have to say to us that are more than we can currently bear. 
and we sometimes hunker down, not on your word, but in our own corner. We pray that you'd forgive us for running from you. I pray that you would open up our eyes to see where there are pockets of hardness, where we resist you, when there will be so much blessing in receiving you. Lord, where we guard our dirtiness rather than expose it to you to be washed clean, where we walk our own way instead of walking yours, where we treat the story of Scripture lightly and where we hold back from resting in your promise and trusting you. Lord, in all these ways, forgive our hard-heartedness, I pray. And Lord, I pray that you'd forgive us for looking at others' hypocrisy as if that's an excuse for our own. At looking at others' hard-heartedness as if that's an excuse for our own. Forgive us for pointing fingers at other people's wrong interpretation when we should have been receiving your word ourselves. Forgive us for pointing the finger at other people's inactivity and unresponsiveness to your command when we're still so passive ourselves. I pray that you would unite us in soft-hearted devotion to you and birth in us fresh desire to hear your voice and to let it overwhelm us like thunder like mighty waters to let your word overwhelm us and carry us along and take us where you would have us go